This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Practicing religion in the age of the internet offers an array of choices that seem to change with each passing year. Large Christian congregations stream their services across the world, Buddhist groups meditate together via Zoom, and groups have even existed virtually in Second Life. The story of online churches is rich and varied, with peaks and valleys over the past few decades. Practicing religion via the internet creates a hotly contested debate over exactly how to do religious practices. At the moment, it is hard to escape the importance that the internet will play in the year 2020. 2020 will be a year that we remember for years to come as the year the world basically shut down in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. As of recording this on March 24th, 2020, countries the world over are in varying stages of social lockdown, and the internet is largely what is keeping us all connected. So a topic that is interesting to me at the moment is how we make sense of some possibilities within the internet and religion in the age of COVID-19, when we may experience intermittent social lockdowns over the course of the next year or more. Reading the news as this outbreak was spreading across North America, I was amazed to see reports of congregations of 1,000 or more flouting World Health Leaders' advice to not congregate at this time. So I really wanted to talk about these phenomena on the show, so I invited Dr. Tim Hutchings to hang out and talk about his years of researching online churches and religion. Dr. Tim Hutchings is a sociologist of digital religion. His PhD was an ethnographic study of the five online Christian churches that he was looking at. Dr. Hutchings is interested in the relationship between religion, media, and culture with particular attention to digital forms of Christianity. His research has included studies of online worship, digital evangelism and formation, online communities, digital publishing and e-reading, apps and games, and even death and dying. His research led to the publication of his book, Creating Church Online, Ritual, Community, and New Media, from Rutledge in 2017. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim underscore Hutchings, and you can follow the Classical Ideas podcast on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. So this is a really great conversation. It's timely, it's modern, it's important at the moment. I think you're really going to love it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tim Hutchings.
Dr. Tim Hutchings, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks so much for inviting me. You are so welcome. It's great to have you here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a long time, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today to talk about your areas of expertise. If you can spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit, that would be great. Okay, great. Uh, so I am a sociologist of digital religion is, is how I tend to describe myself. I, the, the field of research I work in is uh, religion, media and culture. Um, but I work at the moment as an assistant professor in religious ethics at the University of Nottingham in the UK in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. Uh, and there I'm doing research around particularly digital religion, but I'm teaching classes on religion, media and ethics, um, interfaith relations, introduction to the study of religion and, and topics like that. Fantastic. So you are known within the field of religious studies for your work on online churches, mostly through your book, Creating Church Online, which came out a couple of years ago now in 2017, I believe. And I was reading this the other day, and in the introduction to your book, you seem to define online churches as, quote, internet-based Christian communities pursuing worship, discussion, friendship, support, proselytization, and other key religious goals through computer-mediated communication. How did you come to be interested in the idea of religious community gathering online? When did you decide that this was the field that you wanted to pursue with your career? So um, I can trace this very uh, exactly. Um, I like I, 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 my sense is this is true for quite a lot of people in the study of religion or the sociology of religion. But I, I started out first with an interest in theology and philosophy uh, kind of studying religious traditions from the inside and through my research quite quickly became much more interested in um, that kind of external gaze. Why are people doing this rather than whether they're right or wrong? Um, and I went to the University of Durham in the UK to do a master's degree. I had to propose a master's thesis. Um, and my idea for this was something extremely ambitious in Christian theology, uh, trying to understand the way in which God communicates with humans from a feminist perspective, something like this. Um, and they uh, sat me down and said, that's that's a great idea. You're never going to be able to answer that question in 10,000 words. Um, lots of people have talked about this before. Uh, a really good dissertation should do something new. Is there anything you can think of that hasn't been studied a thousand times before? Hmm. Um, and at this point, we were just like a year out from an event in the history of online religion, which was the launch in 2004 of two different projects in the UK. There was one called Church of Fools and there was one called iChurch. Um, and they were both online churches. Uh, they weren't the first online churches, but they were the first to get really big media attention. Um, and they were the first to have the backing of big denominations in the UK, at least. So the Methodist Church had put some money into Church of Fools. Um, the Church of England actually launched this thing called iChurch as part of one of the dioceses in the Church of England. It was it was an Anglican church. Um, so I said, well, do you know that people are doing church on the Internet now? And I don't think very much has been written about that yet. And the uh, grad student advisor said, well, for goodness sake, drop this ridiculous project about God's revelation um, and instead study this thing that's completely new and is unfolding right in front of you. And no one's written about it. Um, so that's what I did. And I, I wrote a master's thesis that was looking at 
um, debates around communion online, particularly, um, trying to understand that theologically. Um, I then turned that into a PhD looking at uh, a group of different online churches using ethnographic research methods. So I became part of um, four different communities, one of which had changed several times. So it ended up being five case studies. Um, and in each one of those, I spent up to three years uh, just trying to live as a member of the community online, um, doing what they did, uh, meeting them face to face sometimes if that's if that was part of their community life. Um, finding out why these people were doing this thing online, what it was they were doing, uh, what it meant for them. Um, that then several years later turned into a book um, with the wonderful academic careers market that we have. Um, I had several short one or two year postdocs after I finished my PhD rushing off working on new projects. By the time I found the time to go back to my PhD and turn it into a book, um, I found actually I would got something like 10 years of research from the beginning of my master's to the end of the, the book writing project. Mm. Um, and that, that actually is kind of unusual in digital research or digital religion research to have that sort of long term gaze at how a small group of projects have changed over time. Um, so that was then the book that became Creating Church Online. Interesting. Well, that's really cool because now you, you sort of like from the master's through the PhD, through the postdoc, you sort of like accumulated this like longitudinal data set that I feel like most people would take years in their career to stumble upon. Do you feel pretty lucky that you were able to do that right at the outset of your career? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, it's something that I felt has been quite important. Um, one of the so you, at the beginning of your question, you mentioned the way I defined online churches. Mm. Um, and that's really hard to do. Um, if I was trying to work out, as I did several times in the project, how many of these things there are, uh, if you search for online church, you'll find the widest possible range uh, of things that are calling themselves online church. So it might be a, uh, a virtual world there where there is a building that looks like a church and there's a community of people who come together once a week and someone preaches a sermon and they all sit in pews and they sing a song like the, the most church looking thing imaginable. Um, but at the other end, you've got people who have a Twitter account or a blog and they've called it church and they don't have any followers and there's never been any interaction. But they're saying, like, this is my church or maybe they don't use that language. Um, but the word church is attached to it somehow uh, and trying to work out where the boundaries of this thing called online church are is, is very difficult. Um, so that's why the, the definition that I used is kind of list. It's like a family definition. It's, it's listing some of the things that seem to be almost always there when people use this word church in an online context. Um, so the relevance of that to your question before you ask um, <laughs> is that one of the oddities of online church is that people almost always seem to think that they're the first people ever to do this. Um, so if you're looking at media coverage um, and if you're looking at the rhetoric that people use when they launch a thing that they're calling church, um, you've got people call announcing the first online church from something like 1985 up to 2019. Um, there was actually a, a pretty strong contender just last week of somebody who seemed to think they were launching the first ever online church. <laughs> nice. Um, and the, the only way, so if you're Googling, you know, if you're getting your information from online searches, a lot of the data that comes in is not necessarily very accurate. It's, uh, 
people talking about what they're doing as something very original when actually it, it participates in a much longer tradition. Um, so the only way to understand what's going on is to be part of that tradition yourself for as long as you can or to talk to people who are kind of the older generations of online community work to find out what was really going on in those uh, in, in those earlier periods. So um, when you say earlier periods, when do you think that the first actual online churches were established? Can you pinpoint it to like specific years? So what you've what you've got uh, is writings that people produced in the 1980s and the 1990s that mention online church. And the problem is that no one at that stage that I've found is really focused on this. Um, people are not right. They're not trying to write the history of this thing because it's emerging around them and they haven't yet recognized it, that it's of huge significance. Mm. Um, so in a lot of the early Christian writing about the Internet, online church features more as um, like a limit case or a, a terrible warning, maybe. Um, you've got to, to you know, the internet is wonderful. You have to treat it seriously, or we might end up going to online church. And here's an example of somebody who's done that. It, it's the the terrible fate that could await us if we get carried away with the virtual. Um, or you've got people, you know, more more enthusiastically writing about how the internet is being used, and maybe they mention one or two examples. Um, so some of the things that get mentioned in this kind of these kind of examples, um, there was a uh, a Christian memorial service in response to the Challenger space shuttle disaster. Um, so that's early in the 1980s, um, uh, created by a Presbyterian group um, through Usenet, I believe. Okay. Uh, the the first ever virtual world, again, that's kind of the mid-1980s, uh, the first virtual world to have a graphic interface, um, had somebody in it who was doing something they called church. Uh, it's not very clear what that is, because, again, the, the people who are writing about that virtual world are not hugely interested in religion. They just mention this as a kind of quirky anecdote as they're, as they're passing over other things. Um, but there was something that was like a kind of comedy, but also ethical commitment to nonviolence that called itself church. Um, so mid 1980s is the, the I think is the answer to your question. Gotcha. Okay. So um, in the book, you also write as of like 2017, that there are hundreds of thousands of people who are now involved with online congregations, and they are generating new kinds of ritual leadership and community and networks of global influence. So that's now about, a, you know, a little over two years ago. Um, so as of like late March, early April 2020, when you and I are talking, do you have like a best guess estimate about what numbers are like in online churches around the world today? So um, I was looking into this before our conversation because I was preparing to tell you that the answer was no, it's very hard to tell, but I'm, I might be able to put more of a number on it than I'd expected. Um, the, the first thing I found doing my research is that most of the online churches that are created are pretty small. They're, um, it's it's a bit unclear what counts as being involved with an online church. Um, how If you've got somebody who's signed up to the mailing list and they visited once, do you count them in your congregation or not? Um, but most of the groups that I was looking at would attract sort of 10 or 15 people to a worship event, and they might have a few hundred people kind of on the books in some in some way. Mm -hmm. um, then from about 2007, 
you get American mega churches. Uh, and this happened, I think, in other countries around the world with, with very large churches as well. But at least in the English language, um, online religious sphere, which is a, an important distinction. Um, American mega churches are coming online in about 2007 and broadcasting a thing that they call online church. And it's very different. So instead of having 10 or 15 people getting together and kind of collaborating to produce a thing that they're going to call church, you've got something that's much more hierarchical, focused on a preacher, operating through streaming video, not through a chat room, that kind of thing. Um, and that transformed the scale of what we're talking about. So if you're going to have a virtual world or a chat room where people come together and they have a conversation, you're, you're actually pretty limited in how many people can participate in that before it just becomes a mess. Um, if you've got one preacher who's going to talk to an hour uh, for an hour into a video, your audience could be any size. Um, and so th and those churches start boasting about the numbers that they're getting. Um, so there's a there's a, another difficulty here that any kind of size data is coming purely from people who um, we would not wish to accuse them of just making the numbers up, but they've got a certain vested interest in in making the numbers sound big, right? These are not objective sources necessarily. Um, but preachers who are talking online to their virtual communities start talking in terms of hundreds of thousands of, of listeners. Um, that then recently, uh, well, so um, there's a, a church in America called Life Church um, based in Oklahoma. Um, they produced something called the Church Online Platform. Um, that's a software package that any church can now use free of charge to do their own online thing. Um, and the data that comes out of that is it's quite sporadic, as, as I understand it. They, they will occasionally make an announcement about, yeah, we've, we've hit this number or that number. Um, but just in the last week or so, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, um, Christianity Today wrote an article interviewing the people who run the church online platform, um, and they provided some numbers, which was that they had five million, just under five million devices connecting to church online systems around the world um, over the, just over the last weekend. Um, and that was about four times higher than they had had before. Um, so if those numbers are accurate, you've got at least a million people around, well, at least a million devices around the world connecting in some way. Um, and then the challenge is figuring out how many devices, how, how a certain number of devices relates to a certain number of people. Um, because at least in the rhetoric of this kind of online church, um, you're encouraged to bring your whole family together around the TV screen or the, the computer screen. Um, so they will often suggest that one connection actually represents three or four people. Um, so th that's that's the kind of scale that we seem to be talking about so far. Nice. We're going to get back into that uh, COVID-19 pandemic issue in just a few minutes. Um, so thank you for bringing that up because I feel like that's where this conversation is naturally going to head considering the way of the world and what we're going to be seeing across the world over the next 12 to 18 months if the estimates are correct. But, you know, religion changes. It grows. It adapts. And it reacts to cultures and social changes over time. So the development of, you know, the Internet as such a central focal point of our lives. I mean, you and I are talking over the Internet across the entire world right now. Um, and I'm curious about how religious traditions change as we immerse ourselves more in technology over time. So, 
you know, you write in the book that some practitioners of online church have long argued that new technologies demand moral, theological, and ritual flexibility. And I'm curious about that flexibility. So as technology has immersed itself in our lives so deeply since you started the initial research for the book, how far has online religion flexed on what is acceptable religious expression? So one of the um, w- one of the reasons why people got interested in online church as a research topic um, early on um, is that they saw it as a kind of laboratory. Um, there might the, so there, there are lots of articles written in, around the early 2000s sort of period, um, looking online for evidence of ritual innovation, for example. Um, And what those people tended to find, and what I found in my own research, was that actually there was a lot of, uh, a surprising amount of familiarity in online religion. Uh, What seemed to happen is that people spent a great deal of time trying to use the technology that was available to them to produce something that was as familiar to them as possible. Um, So, for example, in virtual world environments where you could build a physical representation of anything you wanted, uh, people would build medieval looking plain stone churches. Um, When you could liturgically do absolutely anything, people tended to try and faithfully reproduce the style of liturgy that they were used to in uh, the the kind of church that they came from. My understanding of that is that there's already a huge jump in moving something online, uh, something like church. There's a a great uncertainty about whether this is real, whether it works, um, whether you could take it seriously or not. And those those kind of visual and structural elements of familiarity give people confidence. Um, They give you the clues to understand that this is a sacred space, what you should expect when you go there. Um, how you can behave, who might be in charge and what what you should say to them, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. So, Um, oh, sorry. But so so, so around that, you find some some interesting elements of flexibility kind of worked into the familiar. Um, So, for example, who gets to be in charge? It can be quite flexible. Um, A lot of online churches look very familiar. They work in a very familiar way they run very familiar prayers and the person in charge of the church actually is is somebody who was not not always but is somebody who was not ordained or not approved to do that kind of thing in an offline context so you get that kind of um flexibility of leadership or or an opportunity for people to rise up and do something that they weren't allowed to do before um or you find people using just as you see lots of linguistic innovation around uh, online around emoji and punctuation, um, you find in some online churches people using the the gestures that are available to them to produce uh, new kinds of rituals. Sometimes, gotcha. Uh, but there's there's the elements of innovation kind of worked into something which still has to seem familiar enough that you can believe it's real. How are traditions like sacraments performed in online churches when there isn't a person to person interaction? Um, so that's one of the great theological challenges that online churches struggle with. Um, it's actually not necessarily something that comes up all that often within 
online communities, I find. Um, it's the question that theologians ask about online churches rather than necessarily something that community members ask themselves. Um, and my interpretation of that, having spent a long time within some examples of these online churches, is that actually the community that was brought together was often theologically quite diverse. Um, there will be people who had a very high sacramental theology and people who had um, a much more kind of poetic or uh, um, um, a, a much less literal maybe interpretation of what was going on. Um, and these were people who could exist in the same church very happily, praying together, talking together, agreeing to disagree on theology, unless you forced them to do a ritual together that was supposed to mean the same thing for everybody. Um, so actually doing communion online was going to be a real problem for some of these churches. Um, so that was one reason why I, I think they, they talked about it a bit, but kind of shied away from, from rehearsing it. Um, but you do find some churches have given it a go. Uh, there are various different ways of trying to reproduce sacraments online for, for churches that do decide to give this a go. Um, one of the most common is to invite people to do something physical in front of the computer screen. Um, so the whole ritual is not happening in, in some kind of virtual cyberspace. It's, uh, there's a communication that happens digitally between embodied people at either end who are doing something. Um, so that might mean, for example, bringing bread and wine or crackers and juice or whatever it might be to the computer and then sitting together with friends and family and having a communion event like that. Um, that's particularly common with baptism, which does happen online sometimes. Um, the, my sense is that uh, communion online is, is not that common um, because it's it's something that is valued very highly in certain traditions, but it's not essential mm. in the same way that baptism is essential. If, if somebody has come to faith in Jesus or however they want to phrase that, has decided to become a Christian, wants to mark that, they need to get baptized. Um, so if you're a group that exists online, you need to do that online. Um, and that uh, you can find YouTube videos of churches doing that for many years, uh, often using something like a bathtub. Um, you get a, a group of friends together uh, you dunk someone in the bathtub. You've got a pastor watching over a, a, a webcam and saying various important words. Um, and that's that's the baptism. Um, you can try taking the whole thing online, um, exchanging. So instead of a communion ritual where people eat and drink together, they could exchange images of bread and wine or emoji or um, animate their avatars to eat and drink. Um, I, I know of places where you can buy the animations to do that. I don't know of very many people who've actually tried to do it. Um, um, I have seen churches doing virtual baptism in virtual water. That's something that, you again, you can find on YouTube. There was a lot of publicity around a virtual church doing this just last year. Um, but again, it's, it's not a particularly common activity. Um, you, when I was doing my uh, my PhD research, I spent some time in the virtual world of Second Life, um, which was a much discussed phenomenon at, at that moment. Um, in Second Life, a very common activity for people spending time in the world was to build relationships with others and host avatar weddings, which were very extravagant. Um, 
those would sometimes take place in buildings that looked like churches. So there was a kind of theological conundrum for uh, Christian communities trying to exist in that world to say whether they would reject that as an inauthentic marriage or accept it as kind of part of the culture of the thing that they were trying to be part of. Um, and mostly churches said they weren't interested. They didn't want it. Um, but they would get a lot of a lot of requests. Um, so that that's another kind of line that has been drawn about sacraments or rituals or um, and whether they're effective or not in in online contexts um the the kind of third most uh calling it most creative sounds a bit judgmental maybe that's not what i mean but um um most innovative perhaps is that if that's fair option yeah. would be to try and see if there might be something that could happen in a virtual context that had the same symbolic meaning as the physicality of the sacraments in a face-to-face embodied context. So for example, um, if we have two avatars in a virtual world and we share a cup of wine, that doesn't really mean the same thing as you and me having a drink together. Um, it's, it's just a representation of something that could happen somewhere else. Um, but there might be a way of trying to, to boil down what is what is important about food or drink or water um, that has caused those things to be chosen as the physical elements for sacramental ritual. Um, and is there something in an online context that has the same function that could be picked out? Um, I, I've seen that discussion had among theologians many times over the years. Again, I, I don't really know of churches that have tried it. Um, it tends to get Christian participants get very twitchy at that point and start saying, well, I don't want to be here if you're going to do that kind of thing. Um, but if anyone listening to this podcast knows of examples, then please do get in touch because I'd be fascinated to find out more. Gotcha. Well, I know that you've also personally engaged over the years in online religious gatherings as an ethnographic observer, but it seems like you also did some stuff your own. And within the book, you describe what online religious groups do why they do them and how they change over time. Um, can you talk a little bit about your personal experience, um, like doing some things within online churches, like what you would personally do as a participant on any given Sunday or whenever you would get together? So um, one, well, so one challenge for ethnographic participation was that I, I'd rather ambitiously decided to try and study four different groups at once. All of those groups were meeting many times a week with different members of the group um, to try and meet different time zones. Um, so on a Sunday, I might have any number of, of events that I could go along to, but I'd probably try and narrow down and say, well, I'm just going to go to five or something like this. Um, that's a lot of hour long church services to try and go to, even if you're taking notes as an ethnographer. Um, and at least occasionally, I would be trying to get into the the non-European time zones, which might mean getting up at two o'clock in the morning to see what would happen or staying up until four o'clock in the morning. And uh, looking back, it was not very many years ago that I did this, but I, I would probably not be able to do that now. That was the enthusiasm of the PhD researcher, maybe. Um, gave me strength to do this. Mm. Um, but th- these events had a wide range of different styles. Um, the simplest ones based mainly in the UK um, like the Anglican 
Anglican uh, influenced I Church or the uh, independent but Methodist funded Church of Bulls um, had quite liturgical events, which involved a certain degree of kind of call, call and response isn't quite what I mean, but um, um, somebody leading the service would be typing prayers and then they would maybe put a line or two in bold um, and that would be an indication that everyone present in the chat room would type those lines back. Um, prayer was very important, um, periods for people to type in their own prayer requests. Um, the In um, Church of Fools changed its name after a few years, became St. Pixels, had a chat room that ran services um, and a, a practice developed in that church of just typing the names of people you wanted to pray for. Um, so it wasn't kind of a focused moment where everybody would get together and, and pray over that name, but people would type in names. And if you had maybe 20 people in a chat room, each of them typing 10 or 15 names, they flew past incredibly quickly. Um, so you've got a huge volume of communication zooming past on the screen. Um, and I asked the people in charge if they would let me record that just have a screenshot of it somehow um and their response was that they would only do that if they could take the time to edit out all of the prayers from the transcript so even though there was no content to those beyond the name they had a kind of sacredness that couldn't be shared outside the event um if they used their own software to make a transcript they were going to take all of those out um there was also a ritual of sharing um, the Lord's Prayer, which became very important for that church over 15 years or so, um, in which everybody present would type out the Lord's Prayer in their own favorite version or language at the same time. Um, which was, we were talking earlier about ritual flexibility, that's quite a simple idea, but it was quite a powerful thing to participate in. Um, just the kind of flood of text zooming up the screen with bits that you might recognize and bits that you might not. Um, that's very different from something like Life Church, where the event was much more one directional. Um, so at uh, Life Church, you would have um, a live stream of a worship band. But sometimes you could choose between which worship band you wanted to listen to. So you could kind of customize your online church experience to get the exact sort of music that you most liked. Um, then you'd have a, uh, a sermon um, from the pastor. And your role in this was to respond enthusiastically. So there's a chat room alongside the live stream in which people at that time, at least, uh, would just talk about how great it was, um, how much it meant to them, how much God was helping them through this event, how much they needed to hear it. Um, any other kind of communication was very quickly shut down and redirected to private channels. Even, you know, a request for prayer that goes somewhere else. Um, but there they had built in um, opportunities for interaction um, and opportunities for sharing, which the, the other churches I looked at didn't have in quite the same way. So, for example, a button would appear saying, if you want to invite people to church, click this button and we'll send out a pre-written tweet for you. Um, uh, that church had um, something like an altar call every week. So there would be a call to commit yourself to Jesus um, and a small animation would appear on the screen. And if you clicked on that, a hand would go flying up and there'll be a numbers counter saying three people have done it. Four people have done it. And people get very excited in, in counting those numbers as they went up. Um, 
the uh, church in Second Life that I mentioned to you, uh, because that was in a virtual world, uh, there was a lot more flexibility in what you could do as interaction with that. Um, so it would be very common for avatars to fly around um, or uh, have a dance party after the event finished, something like that. Gotcha. Um, and I also mentioned before that several of these groups that I looked at would uh, meet up in person um, not often, but maybe once a year or so, they would have um, gatherings where people got together and met face to face. So I would go along and participate in those as well as, as another aspect of the of the research. So when you were participating in these groups, were there any times when you were sitting there thinking, wow, this detail works really well and this detail really does not work well in an online environment? Like what seemed to be working and what seemed to not be working? Um, so one thing that I noticed was that in, in some of the, so in some of the churches I looked at, the technology would be very simple. Uh, some of the churches, the technology was very complicated. That didn't seem to matter too much. Um, what you needed was a group of people who were committed to coming together and making this work. Uh, and preferably had a bit of a sense of humor about any glitches that might come along. Um, flexibility was incredibly important. So the the churches that survived were able to keep reflecting on what they were doing, whether it worked or not, change, try something new. Uh, and often the, the things that ended up being most successful were not what people had foreseen. Um, so I, I've mentioned iChurch a few times. That was launched originally as... Uh, an online monastery on Benedictine principles. And, and that idea kind of came back from time to time. Um, but really, I think what succeeded there was people around the world coming together to pray in an environment that was kind of influenced by Anglican theology. Um, so having the flexibility to recognize that something isn't working and try something new as often as possible was important. Um, the the Another thing that varied a lot between the churches I looked at is why they were there. Um, how did the person who was officially leading this church think about what was happening online? Um, and sometimes the person in charge would be just fascinated by the possibilities of what they could do in a digital context um, or really committed to kind of reaching a particular community who couldn't meet together any other way. Um, Sometimes you you found people who were going online because they didn't like it, which which sounds a bit silly. Um, but I had multiple conversations with people who were specifically going online because they thought the Internet was a place of sin and wickedness um, and everybody there was a sinner. And they were kind of forcing themselves to go online to communicate their message into the darkness. Um, those those people did not tend to attract a very large congregation. Um so a certain kind of enthusiastic openness to the possibilities of what are, what are, uh, what's happening was really important. Um, you'd also find people who were either because they were busy or they just didn't have the time or didn't really have the interest. Um, they were just not very present in the church that they were supposed to be running. Um, so the pastor would broadcast a sermon on Sunday and there was a community that worked all the way through the week, but the pastor was not going to be there. Um, 
and the the community would do its own thing and then on sunday this strange voice that nobody really knew would turn up and preach for a bit and disappear again mm. uh, so that that kind of presence was important um presence flexibility enthusiasm a bit of a sense of humor i think those, those would be my recommendations so one of the things you also write about is how like they sort of surged and then declined a little bit. I think that's the impression that I gathered from you is that they, you know, they they didn't take off in a way that we may have expected in a virtual world. However, um that was a couple years ago and now you mentioned earlier that the uh COVID-19 pandemic is causing these online numbers to spike. So we find ourselves in this very interesting situation where we're sort of like paralyzed at the moment and schools, concerts, sports, public gatherings are currently shut in places all over the world where you are, where I am as we grapple with this situation. So I'm assuming that you're paying a lot of attention to online religion and online churches right now. And I'm curious how you're seeing events play out as churches and religious groups respond in real time to each day's events. Like, have you noticed any, like, what have you been reading in the past couple of weeks that are informing what, how you're thinking about this, uh, your work? So, um, yeah, so, so you mentioned the, the idea that online churches may be grown and declined a bit. Um, the, a, a lot of the early interest in online church was not very consistent, not very continuous, but there'll be moments when people with money, uh, big church organizations, media journalists would suddenly start writing about the possibilities of doing things on the internet. Um, and the hype would often spiral way out of connection with what was actually happening on the ground. Um, so there'll be lots of talk about evangelism and reaching the new generation and everybody's going online and we need to be there. Um, and then after six months or a couple of years, the, the journalists are writing about something else. Um, and the, the church that had funded the original experiment has forgotten about it. They've moved on to another thing. Um, and if you followed the so if you followed the actual communities, they were pretty steady in numbers. Um, the, the number of churches out there seemed to be fairly steady. The number of people involved seemed to be fairly steady, uh, with the exception, I think, of the megachurch influenced broadcast model that was which was really increasing in numbers although the the data on that was not very easy to get hold of um but within the european context if you looked where um big christian denominations were putting their were, were putting their funding for new projects it shifted over time so from around 2004 you've got online churches then a few years after that um Maybe we could have a chaplain who would sort of explore lots of social media networks. Um, a few years after that, it goes to much more to trying to recruit people from the world of business who can run a good viral campaign. Um, less interest in creating online churches, much more in supporting local churches with um, digital initiatives that they can get involved with. Um, which kind of tracks the change in how the internet was thought about in society from this wonderfully exciting cyberspace where anything was possible um, towards being just kind of the infrastructure that makes everything work. Um, and I, I've given many lectures and, and kind of seminar conversations over time comparing that to things like the car or the electric light bulb um, or the telephone. That 
really made huge differences to the way people communicated, were very exciting when they were first introduced, but now no one is talking about the theology of telephones. Um, so it seemed like attention had kind of moved elsewhere. Um, this sudden pandemic has completely transformed that moment. Um, groups that had maybe relied on the internet just to have a website or something like this are suddenly having to do all of their activity online. Um, so this idea, which I, I thought maybe it's time had, had almost passed a little bit, is suddenly everywhere. Um, and at least in, in this country, is the only form of public worship as of last weekend. Um, at the same time, and this is a really interesting, or in like a year, looking back on this, this will be a really interesting moment for me to kind of reflect on what it means to be an academic. Um, at the same time, the university contacts I've got are all absolutely frantic. We've got far too much to do. Um, we're all trying to work out how to look after students who maybe had pastoral needs and have suddenly been torn out of their support systems and thrown back into their home environment. Um, and we've got to work out how to teach online. Um, and we've got to work out what it means to move the whole university online. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're beginning to think, but, you know, the thing that we research, right, the thing that we research is happening right in front of us. We've got to study this. Um, I uh, spent some time trying to work out ethically what, what is my responsibility in this situation. Um, mm. Because it, it felt really when the first crisis hit, um, and people started to realize, and maybe they're still realizing now, how bad this situation could get. Um, it seemed like the worst possible taste to start marching around on the internet saying, I wrote a book about this mm. very thing. Um, and I, I know other, other researchers who've got relevant things to say have struggled with that as well. Um, we're, we're not necessarily used to, we're not all necessarily used to promoting ourselves in crisis in, in that way. Um, which also, you know, kind of says something about um, um, what what is considered appropriate material for research and what is not. Yeah. Um, um, I'm talking to you as somebody who's white and male and heterosexual, and my research topics do not normally involve me being at risk. That's not true for everybody. Um, it's kind of a new experience for me to be talking about my research to colleagues who are suffering the things that we're talking about. And that, obviously that's not true for everybody. Um, lots of people always do that research in that, their research in that space. Um, so these are all, I think at the moment I'm starting to see kind of the beginnings of research networks that will emerge around this, um, trying to find ways to ethically and responsibly record these very important events that are happening around us um, and finding ways to, to, find the time to dig out of our research the ideas that are actually relevant now um, that people need to know about. Um, because coming back to your question, what I'm seeing, I think, is, um, as we mentioned before, that there's not always a lot of sense of history in online religion, digital religion. Um, every project is the first new project. Um, so what I'm seeing at the moment is a huge rush of language of novelty. Um, the churches are doing something completely new for the first time. Um, alongside that, there is a 
calling it opportunism would be unfair that uh, you may have a, a better word to suggest for that. But it seems like a lot of people who are in powerful leadership positions who have been trying to promote a digital agenda for a long time are leaping on this crisis and saying now is the moment when you all need to download that damn project that we have been t- that product that we've been telling you to download for five years. Um, you all need to start. Uh, so in the university context, this is certainly true. You all need to start using this or that software for your classes. Um, in the church context, the people who have had uh, products that they've been promoting for quite a while um, are now reminding churches that now is the time to sign up for this or that. Um, we, we're not yet, I think, we, it, it feels we've not yet reached the space where people can stop and pause and kind of reflect on what they might like to do next. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that we will see um, that pause soon, perhaps, of uh, uh, and a, a trying to find out what are the most exciting things that have happened, what are the most interesting experiments, um, what are the most effective ways of supporting people, um, seeing if those can rise to the top over the uh, over over the noise that we're getting at the moment. Yeah, um, I think so. One. Thinking as a sociologist, one point that I'm particularly interested in um, at the moment is that the the books that I read about religion in Britain talk about vicarious religion or civil religion or some idea that in times of crisis, people turn to Christianity. Um, Not everybody, obviously, but um, the, the, the Church of England particularly has a certain role in the national consciousness. Um, and we're aware that that has been declining over time, but you kind of expect it to be there at, at moments of crisis. Gotcha. Which makes this a really fascinating moment for a sociologist of religion, because you have a crisis where people are forbidden to go to their local church. Um, even if they might be people who would possibly go along for Christmas or Easter or possibly go and visit the church if there were tourists going to a particular place, or at least kind of like the idea that the local vicar might have something to say on a topic. Um, they're not allowed to do that. Uh, funerals and memorials are going to take place without gathering. They're already taking place without bringing families or communities or congregations together. Um, so there, there is a, a kind of rush, I think, for religious communities to work out how to do something digitally that might recreate that centrality to the to the cultural narrative of the moment um to be the place that that everyone can turn to um at at the moment what i'm seeing is a lot of live streaming of church services which is uh um a a fairly straightforward way to try and continue business as usual i guess Mm -hmm. um just this weekend the in the uk at least uh in um I should say in England, I'm not sure exactly how widely it was broadcast, but the uh, the Church of England ran a national virtual service. Um, so the Archbishop of Canterbury spoke to the nation and this went out on the radio and it went out online. Um, and that, that looked like a moment of trying to trying to use the new kind of digital possibilities to create a sense of the church being at the heart of the nation. Um, even when physically people can't leave their houses. 
Well, um, and, yeah. it'd be very interesting to see how that does or doesn't continue. Well, and I'm also seeing um, things play out across multiple religions. Like the other day I was talking to uh, a few Zen teachers that I know, and one has opened up his um, his Zen sitting groups and chanting groups that you know they're, they're doing it all online for free now. And then another teacher that I talked to the other day, Deborah Eden Toll, she was talking about how she's doing Tuesday and Thursday noon uh, meditation sits. So like this seems to be going on across you know, multiple religions. It's not just Christianity. I think that everybody's adapting in the moment right now. Um, and so I'm curious about your, if, if people were to come to you for advice on how to make it work, say a teacher from any different religion were to come to you and say, Dr. Hutchings, based on your research, what are some things you think we should do in order to be successful while we are, pre- while we are prevented from being together in person? Like what kind of advice would you offer them based on what you've seen over the years? So I think my first piece of advice would be to find the people who've already been doing this and go and talk to them. Um, just be confident that this is not a new, it's a new situation, but the challenge of sharing your uh, community's life online has been met by other people before. Uh, so go and find out what they're doing and talk to them and, and, and see how you can learn from them. Um, it might not be necessary for every group to reproduce everything online. Um, if you already know that the best preacher in your country is preaching online, can you invite people to go and listen to that person? Um, you could present this as an opportunity for people to hear different diverse voices that they've not heard from before, um, listening to podcasts like this one. Um, or fi- finding ways to bring in a diversity of, of teachings, perhaps. Um, I would focus on what your community wants from you. Um, and this, this is a, a conversation that a lot of us are having in academia at the moment, that the, the pressure has been, my sense is that the pressure has been from the universities down onto teachers to maintain business as usual. Um, continue lectures, continue seminars, continue assessments, um, pretend that nothing has changed. Um, if we listen to what our communities or our students or our congregations or the society around us is looking for, it might be something very different. Um, there, there might, it might be that your congregation is willing to say, actually, we, we don't really need a sermon for the next couple of weeks. We'd much rather do something else. Um, if you can find out what your community really needs, and you can find a way to do that, you will succeed online, even if the, the technology perhaps has flaws. Um, so be ready to experiment. Try out a whole bunch of different things. Don't get too attached to them. Be willing to discard and move on if necessary. Um, well, and as we mentioned before, have a bit of a sense of humor. I think. Yeah. That's going to be important. Well, and- be, Everybody knows this is a crisis. Nobody is expecting it to be perfect and flawless. Um, if you can gather a group of people together to do a thing that they all want to do, um, and you can have a bit of a sense of humor about how things are going wrong, um, and you can show that you're learning from that to get it right next week, then I think that will be very much in your favor. Yeah. Well, and religion is also something that brings groups of like-minded people together the world over across many religions. And 
so right now, um, this crisis is occurring like in the middle of Lent, through Passover, through Ramadan, this April. Are you noticing anything about what groups are trying to do to plan and prepare for these observances while also being aware of the current situation in the world? Like, Are groups talking about these events and reconfiguring how these major events are going to be done in this context? So far, what I am seeing is a lot of cancellations, cancellations and live streaming um, and assurances that something will be figured out. Um, I think this, what I'm really hoping is that academics who study in, in my field and in other fields will come together to map that story, because I think it's going to be fascinating how people adjust to that over the next month or two months. Um, when we have a clearer sense of how long is this going to go on? Um, what are we able to do? What are we not able to do? Um, and people start getting maybe more confident with the, the technologies that they're that are available to them. Um, so, again, thinking of my own university context, our online teaching starts next week. And I think if you come back to me the week after next, everything we do will look very different. Um, thinking of, of churches in the UK, they, they've done one weekend now of, of uh, online broadcasts, maybe two weekends. Um, give it a month things are, are very likely to have changed. Um, so that's that's a question to be determined, I think. Um, um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the books that are written about that in a year or so. Yeah. Uh, do you think this may have like a permanent impact on a reduction of what American Christianity so often refers to as butts in seats? Do you think that people will go and never return? Uh, I think it's very possible. Um, if you are somebody who has been going to a place of worship out of a sense of duty um, and that routine is broken for three months and you discover there are other ways of connecting with your community, would you go back to your place of worship afterwards? Um, we know that conversions happen um, Conversions happen when people are socially available to be converted is the slightly awkward way of, of phrasing it. Um, when you've got reduced ties that will try and keep you into your old identity, um, that's a kind of crisis moment that makes you think about the world in a new way. Um, and you've got opportunities to make new connections. Well, that's where we are right now. Um, um, in the, the same way that... Um, the, the transition of going to university for the first time is a huge spiritual change for a lot of people because they are taken out of a home religious community where everybody expected them to have a particular identity. Then they transfer maybe for the first time into a new place where they can now discover a new identity. Um, and maybe for some people, that new identity means you don't have to go to your place of worship anymore. Um, that could be where we are now. Um, I, I have overheard... Um, uh, an older couple in my local neighborhood talking about this crisis moment and saying that they're, they're, they'd lost their roots. They'd lost their community. They didn't know what to do, um, but they thought they'd be okay. And I thought that was a very interesting comment um, that everything had changed, but actually, you know, I got the sense they were maybe quite looking forward to it. Um, so a, a lot will rest, I think on whether, religious communities are able to position themselves in 
the heart of what happens right now. Um, are people able to turn to their local religious community of whatever tradition for social support when, um, for example, if, if, you're, if a, a religious community was relying on the generation of the oldest members for most of their volunteering work, which a lot of, a lot of communities do, um, and those older members are now confined to their homes for three months. Who's going to do the work? Mm. Um, uh, will we find that younger people commit to becoming volunteers? Um, or will the role of those voluntary groups be replaced by something else? Um, there's a, a lot of, in my mind at least, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, which makes it a very interesting time to go and track what goes on. So as someone who is interested in researching this situation, I'd imagine that you are following um, some various sources of reporting and news out there. Who would you recommend people follow during this ongoing situation if they want to know more about how religious groups are reacting? Where are you getting your information? Well, so the the BBC this year has had, uh, on the BBC World Service particularly, has had the year of Faith and Belief, I think it was called. Um, there's a, a journalist called Sophia Smith-Gayler who has been the Instagram um, Instagram and TikTok reporter um, on religious matters around the world, who's been coming up with all kinds of really interesting stories. Um, she had just launched a radio series on digital religion um, right, a couple of weeks before the virus hit, where she was talking about things like um, digital churches and virtual churches. Um, so uh, certainly I'll be very interested to see what kind of research or what, what future stories are being told there. Um, the Religion News Service, of course, is, is always producing good content on this kind of topic. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll find networks of academics who've been studying this for many years turn to places like The Conversation or Medium or, or other channels to find ways to get their own research out in helpful, helpful new versions. But uh, at the moment, I think everybody is still running around on fire. But give it a week or two. There should be a lot of very interesting stories being told. Awesome. Well, if people want to find you and follow your work, how would you suggest people do that and get in touch uh, and also follow with the most up-to-date thoughts that you are putting out into the world? Um, I am uh, available on Twitter. Um, can you put a, a link to that in the podcast or Absolutely. Uh, tim underscore hutchings that's an easy way to get hold of me if you have any questions um my yeah that's what i suggest send me a tweet excellent well cool well dr tim hutchings um it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about the landscape of online religion and some possible uh trends and predictions that we can look for as our ongoing world crisis unfolds in front of us and I think that, you know, this is going to be a story that is going to be important for many, many months to come. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you are personally noticing. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts because you've been following this as a, you know, a, an area of academic interest for so long. I think that you are uniquely situated to follow the story and notice uh, some continuations, some new developments um, from your years of experience and seeing how this goes into the future. So 
I'm really grateful to you for uh, coming on the show, and I hope that maybe in a few months, whenever the world has developed even more, that you'll consider coming back and giving us an update possibly this summer. Would that be interesting to you? Yeah, absolutely. I have, um, before all of this crisis hit, I was in the middle of launching a new project looking at how different religious communities um, think ethically about media. Uh, what does it mean to live a good life through media? What are the ethical implications um, of good or bad media representation? Those kinds of questions, uh, which when I was putting the project together, felt like I was going to have to try and persuade a lot of people that this was interesting um, to find lots of religious communities that maybe didn't spend a lot of time online and persuade them to, to tell me what they thought about this new, new possibilities. Um, and that's suddenly gone from being um, the the long term project I was hoping to get together to like the top priority of the moment. So I, I'm hoping that we'll have some very interesting stories to share. Yeah, I don't think you'll have to persuade anybody to follow this. <laughs> I think this is going to be our new normal for some time, and uh, I think that people should follow you on Twitter and see what you're up to because I think that you're going to have a lot of really fascinating updates for us in the coming months. Um, well, Dr. Hutchings, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was great to talk to you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.